Welcome to Lead On Purpose. I'm James Lachlan, former seven-time world champion musician and now executive coach to global leaders and high performers. In every episode, I bring you an inspiring leader or expert to help you lead your life and business on purpose. Thanks for taking the time to connect today and investing in yourself. Enjoy the show. Anton Gunn was an advisor to President Barack Obama. He also is best-selling author of The Presidential Principles and has been featured in Time Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, BBC, NPR and on Good Morning America. Anton Gunn and I, we sat down and we chatted about leadership and specifically how to become a more admired leader. Sit back and enjoy the show. Anton, a massive welcome to the Lead on Purpose podcast. Thank you for having me. Excited to be with you. Yeah, it's so great to connect. I've been following your journey, and we've got a, I've got a mutual friend, I guess, through Rory Vaden, who's uh, connected us. <laughs> yes, Rory's a great guy. He always puts great people together, so I'm happy to be with you for sure. Oh, it's so great to connect. And look, I'd like to, to start a little bit, just for those who are listening, uh, to get a bit of a background on who you are. We're going to talk about being an admired executive and the need for developing amazing culture in in today's age. So before we get into that, I'd love to know a little bit about your background. Like The thing that really sprung out to me was that you were an advisor to Barack Obama. So I'd love to chat a bit about your journey to that point. Yes, that's a great place to start. So so I'm definitely going to talk about my time with Barack Obama, but I'll tell you where my story begins. So my story begins with my family. Um, I am a fourth generation military brat. In the United States, we talk about um, if you're a child of a person who served in the military, they call you a military brat because you hang out. And um, my my great grandfather served in both world wars. He actually was um, unfortunately born at the wrong time that he was old enough to serve in the first world war at 20 years old. And then at the age of 45, he was drafted into World War II. Uh, At the same time that he was in World War II, his oldest son, my grandfather, served in the United States Army during World War II, and he played baseball for the Army during the war. And um, they, uh, my my grandfather married a woman uh, who was a welder in the shipyard. Women couldn't serve in the war, but my grandmother was a welder, and she helped to build three aircraft carriers. And they raised four boys. My uncle Clarence was a Marine. My uncle LG was a Vietnam veteran. My dad was in Vietnam and Desert Storm in the Navy. And my dad's baby brother, my uncle Lucky, his name is not Lucky, but they called him Lucky in the family because he joined the Army in 1973 and the Vietnam War was over right before he finished boot camp. So he never got a chance to see combat like his brothers. So everybody in the family called him Lucky. Now, the reason why I start with my family is because the number one leadership skill and the number one leadership trait that I learned from my family that I've taken with me everywhere that I go in my life is to serve people first before you try to lead them. 
And I come from four generations of men who served. I didn't even mention that my brother, Sharon, joined the United States Navy like my father did, and he served as well. So I never put on a military uniform, but I came from a family who all served. They made a decision to you know, sacrifice themselves, to put themselves um, down to serve others and make a difference in the lives of other people. But where my story uh, differentiates is that when I finished high school, instead of going into the military, I went to college to play American football. And so I'm a former uh, Southeastern Conference football player, and it literally is the biggest and the best football conference in the United States of America. And I would say arguably the best football conference on the planet, if you're talking about American football. Um, I played on the offensive line, and I learned more lessons about leadership. And those lessons are, if you don't know what the offensive line is, the offensive line is the five big fat guys up front who block for all the superstars. I block for the Tom Brady types and the Peyton Manning types. They get all the glory and all the credit, but you'll never know an offensive lineman's name. You know why you'll never know our names? Because if you hear our names, that means we were doing our jobs wrong. And so if you never hear our names, we're doing our jobs right. We work in a group of five. We have to have great communication. We have to be on the same page and we have to support each other and to help each other to block others. And those are lessons that I learned in leadership, that it's not about being the person out front and getting all the glory, but what do you do to make everybody else on your team look good? And how do you communicate and to help people to solve problems so they can be successful? Those are the lessons that I took with me into a life of what I call community service. So after college, I spent the better part of 10 years uh, doing grassroots work, helping poor people who didn't have health insurance coverage, people who lived in underserved communities and needed support. And so I was a servant. My job was to solve problems and to serve people. But then I learned that serving them wasn't enough. And so I needed to find a way um, to empower them. See, service is the prerequisite of leadership, but empowerment in my mind is the essence of leadership. How do you as a leader give people the tools, the information, the resources, the skill set to determine their own destiny? And it's not your job to choose their destiny, but to equip them with everything that they need so they can be successful. So after working in the communities, I saw that I needed to help equip people more. So I started uh, helping to start organizations and incorporate nonprofit charities, um, uh, helping board members to be better executives, to build organizations, giving them the skills and the things that I've learned over time, teaching them how to be better leaders. And that's what led me into American politics. And I found myself uh, running for public office. So, yes, I'm a former elected official. I literally ran for the state legislature. And the first time I ran, James, I I ran and thought I was going to win, but I ended up losing by 298 votes out of 14,000. It was the most humbling experience ever uh, to get that close as a first timer. But here's what I learned from it, is that um, the most precious resource that we all have is time. And if you don't spend enough time with people earning their trust, earning their respect, 
and understanding who they are and what matters to them, then you won't get the most important things you want in life. And it's not about how hard you work. It's not about, you know, how great you are, but it's how much time do you spend learning from other people, getting to know them and making sure that they uh, trust that you are going to be there authentically with them. I brought all of those things with me into working for Barack Obama. And uh, my time working for him was about three and a half years uh, in his administration and also on his campaign. I actually helped him to run for president because he was a leader that I felt like embodied a lot of the same traits that I had. And so I was an advisor over healthcare. And so we all know in, in the States, Obamacare is a big piece of conversation. Everybody's always talking about it. For people who live in other countries where healthcare is a right, they don't understand why we were arguing about healthcare. And I don't either, because I, I do believe that if you're not healthy in your mind, your body, and your community, if you're not totally healthy, you can't live out your God-given potential. And so to me as a leader, it's your responsibility to equip people with the health insurance, the medical care, the treatment, and the services so they can be whole and healthy to live out their God-given potential. And for three and a half years, I helped Barack Obama figure that out, uh, give him some advice and some strategy, and most importantly, to work hard to be um, one of the leaders to help make healthcare a reality for all Americans. That's phenomenal. Thank, thank you for sharing your story and about your family, uh, a family of servant leaders who yes. are just phenomenal. And uh, it says a lot about you, and it's obviously shaped your filter of the world and how you look at leadership. And when you were working with Barack Obama, what were the things that you took away, for, you know, reflecting on that experience, what were leadership principles that maybe you took away from that time? James, I will tell you, there are so many that I could share with you. Um, you know, I, 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 was, I tried to boil this down one time. Uh, I think I wrote a blog post. I've taken it down since then. I probably need to put it back up. But I wrote about the lessons that I learned from Barack Obama that are helping me every day to be a better leader for everyone that I come in contact with. And I'll give you a few of them. The first one is to always surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. The thing that I've learned from Barack Obama is that he appreciates the diversity of ideas. So he'll bring the brightest minds around him and he'll ask the question and let them share their perspective and their opinion while he sits there and listens and learns. And I have this great photo of me in the Oval Office with Barack Obama, where one day I, uh, he asked me my opinion about something. And he's the leader of the free world. He has all of the you know, knowledge and expertise and all these experts around him. But as one lonely person on his team, he says, Anton, what do you think we need to be doing better? And he sat down and he listened to me for 20 minutes. Now, for those of you who don't know, 20 minutes of the president of the United States time is like four lifetimes over. You're blessed to only get five minutes, but I got 20. And so what I learned from him is surround yourself with smart people and listen to them. Understand their perspective and understand what value proposition they're bringing to you. And then you make the best decision possible. So that's lesson number one. 
Lesson number two, which is a very important one that we sometimes don't talk about when we talk about leadership, is to have unconditional love for your family and never be afraid to share what they mean to you. And I saw that every day from Barack Obama. You could not doubt that he loved his wife, Michelle, or his daughter, Sasha and Malia. And he was happy to make them a part of his life. He let you know that he was a whole person, that I'm not just this big figurehead that got this important job, but I'm a husband and a father. And my daughters remind me how uncool I am. And my daughters, uh, you know, let everybody know that I'm just a dumb old dad that, that, that does dad dancing. And so I took a lesson away is to always honor and respect your family and don't be afraid to show them love. And my wife, Tiffany, I've been married almost 22 years now. I got one daughter. Her name is Ashley. She's 17. Uh, they are an important part of who I am as a leader. So that's lesson number two, to love your family. The third lesson, which is the one that we all should probably really, really um, take ownership of, and that is he never let criticism and detractors uh, ruffle his feathers or make him get um, out of sorts or out of his. I mean, he got criticism from everybody and some of it was warranted. And he listened and he reflected on it. And sometimes it was just frivolous uh, people just sniping at you or just trying to you know, find a reason to be upset at you. But I never, ever saw him be bothered by it. He never let it bother him. And it kind of reminded me of something that a president in the past said, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, when he talked about the man in the arena, is that when you're in the arena in the heat of battle, there will always be people sitting on the sidelines, some cheering you on, some finding a way to criticize you and think that you're wrong for doing what you're doing. But most of them don't have the gumption, the mindset, or the skill set to get in the arena. And so when you're in the arena, just recognize that you're doing a job that's not going to make everybody happy. And it's okay whether you make them happy or not. If you're in the middle and people are upset at you and some people love you, then that means you're really doing it right. So those are three um, big takeaways, but I could probably give you another five more because it just kind of just, you know, it was so much I learned, so much I took away. And last one, I'll tell you this one is never be afraid to do big things. I mean, when Barack Obama got elected president, we were in a recession. Uh, our economy was in free fall. We're losing jobs. And, you know, we're in the midst of this 20 year war in Iraq and Afghanistan. So it was not a good time in the United States of America. The global recession was kind of hitting everybody. And in the middle of that dark hour, the president of the United States says in his first public address before Congress, we need to pass health care reform now. And some people were like, man, our economy is in free fall and we got all these other problems. Why in the heck are you talking about health care in the middle of an economic rece recession? He said, because this is a big, hard thing that America hasn't tackled in nearly 50 years. But he also knew that healthcare was nearly 20% of our gross domestic product. And that if you find a way to fix healthcare, you actually fix the economy. And the reason why we have so many people starting their own businesses and becoming entrepreneurs today, because they now no longer have to have health insurance tied to their job, that you can actually get it 
by being an entrepreneur and afforded and pay for it. So don't be afraid to take on tough challenges and to do big things. These are the greatest lessons that I learned from my time working for Barack Obama. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Anton. And the one thing I was reflecting on as you're saying that, you know, great leaders make mistakes. Great yes. leaders have failures. So the, it's kind of a double-sided question. One, what was Barack's approach to when he made a mistake, how did he own it? And two, how did he set the scene for you guys on his team to go, hey, it's okay to make a mistake and here's how we're going to work with it. What, what's yes. your thoughts on that? Oh, great question. Um, this is actually something that I teach in my keynote speeches. And so uh, these are lessons that I really uh, have honed in on through my own personal experience, but also Barack Obama, is that the first thing you have to do is you got to know that you made the mistake. So, so many people, um, what I call bumble through leadership because they make lots of mistakes and they never have the self-awareness or they never allow the people around them to tell them that they screwed up. And one of the things that Barack Obama was totally transparent with and was comfortable with, particularly with me, is that I remember we were in a car one day when he was running for president or thinking about running for president. And he asked me to join his team, his campaign team. I told him that I'm going to be fiercely loyal to you. But the only way I'm fiercely loyal is that I need you to be comfortable that if I tell you that you're screwing up, that you're going to be okay with that and you're going to listen to me. And he said to me, Anton, my wife tells me that I'm screwing up almost every day and I'm comfortable with that. So I'm definitely comfortable with you telling me that I'm screwing up. So whenever he would make a mistake, he was comfortable with his team pointing it out that we didn't do this right or this went wrong. That's point number one. Point number two is to acknowledge the mistake. And Barack Obama was okay with acknowledging when he did something wrong. He did it from the press briefing room. He did it in speeches. He talked about in meetings. If things went wrong, he was happy to say, we screwed up or I screwed up. And then the third lesson is a big one, is to apologize for the mistake that you made. And so many leaders don't know how to apologize. That's actually what I help most organizations with is that mistakes happen in the workplace every day. That's how you build a toxic workplace culture. People get mistreated. They get passed over for promotions. Maybe they get disrespected or downsized or even discriminated against. It happens every day. But what makes it worse is when people don't know that it happens or when they do, they don't acknowledge it. And then the third thing that they never do is apologize for it. Those are three things that I learned from Barack Obama. And then the, the fourth one, if I had to put a fourth one on it, is don't dwell on a mistake. Immediately do everything that you can in your power to try to make it right. And sometimes you might have to bring outside expertise to make it right. Maybe you need to bring um, you know, somebody that disagrees with you in to tell you what you should be doing differently. But more, most importantly, you should get to work immediately and try to do what you can to correct the mistake. That's what I learned from him. And that's what gave us the privilege to do as a team. And these are lessons that I kind of continue to live and lead every day is that there's never a wrong time to start doing the right thing. No matter who made the mistake, no matter how long the mistake was made ago, you got to do something to make it right. And as a matter of fact, the most admired people are the ones who do whatever it takes to make it right. 
Mm. And in terms of awareness, like that's the big one that stuck out for me. So for the leader out there who's rather unaware, like the self-awareness is not there, their Mm -hmm. emotional intelligence is maybe not really in tune. How can a leader develop better awareness of how they're treating people, how they're leading the decisions they're making? Yeah. So that's a great, great question because you can't fix what's wrong until you know what's wrong. And so the first lesson that I would say to anyone who doesn't have that self-awareness, my first point to you is surround yourself with different people. Now, what do I mean surround yourself with different people? We all have blind spots. Every last one of us has blind spots. Uh, Or to put it in a more specific term, we all have biases. And biases can be positive and they can also be negative. And as human beings, we normally surround ourselves with people who are just like us, who see the same things that we see, which means they don't see the same things that we don't see. So the first way to raise your awareness, if you don't have emotional intelligence, is you got to find a way to diversify your peer group. So if you spend all of your time with men who are in your same age, well, it's time to bring some gender diversity and some age diversity into your core group of friends and leadership team. I mean, it's one of the things that I talk about in my keynotes. I I talk about the diversity advantage and the, the advantage of having diversity around you as a leader. So whether it's racial diversity, gender diversity, age diversity, even if it is educational diversity. See, I, I'm, I have a master's degree in social work. And most of the companies that I've worked in as an employee, I was the only social worker. Everybody else had a law degree or they had a business degree. So my perspective on the world was the opposite of someone who's focused on the bottom line return to investors. I could care less about the bottom line return to the investors. I care about the value of the people that work in the organization because I know if you don't have good people, then that means you don't have a good process, which means you're not going to be productive and you're not going to have great profits. So you're focused on the bottom line, but I'm focused on the people. And so diversifying the people around you and their perspectives is how you get greater awareness. That's the first thing. The second thing you do is you have to become incessantly committed to personal growth and development. That means, I love to say, um, leaders are readers. I read about 60 books a year. And you gave me a great book right before we started called Mandela's Way. I will have it ordered on Amazon by the end of the night and in my hands in 48 hours. And I'll probably have it done by next week. Love it. Because I really read a lot of books. And I read from a diversity of authors. I read from women CEOs. I read from young authors. I read from new entrepreneurs. I read books that came out 50 years ago. I I try to have an eclectic palette of information that I take in because it helps me to see things that I don't see, to hear it from a perspective that I don't know. And then the last thing that I do, which every leader should be doing if they, particularly if they lead a team in a large organization, is you have to create the space for your people to tell you when you're wrong and when you're blind. And if you haven't built the kind of culture on your team, in your organization, where people can be honest with you, then you're ha- you have an organization that 
is not going to be successful long term. You're going to find people who will leave you to go work for someone else that is honest, that they can be honest with. Because we got to stop trying to put on this perfect picture that, you know, that leadership is a perfect leadership is messy. Okay. You're never going to get it right all the time. You're going to get it right many times and you're going to be entitled to the opportunity to make mistakes if you're honest and humble and transparent. And if you show people the human side of you, because everybody else on your team is going to make mistakes and you got to create that kind of culture where people can be honest and transparent. And if you don't, you're never going to be that leader that everyone will admire. That's so powerful. And I want to take a look at, Anton, I want to take a look at the cost of mm-hmm. you know poor leadership, the cost mm-hmm. of being mm-hmm. disconnected with your team, the cost of mm-hmm. disregarding people before mm-hmm. we then look at the how to be an admired leader. Yes. So what yes. is the cost? What are the two or three major costs for the company, the organization, if the leader is not respecting and regarding his people? Yeah. So uh, there's so much. And I, I will tell you this. Um, there have been several studies here done recently about the cost to an organization. And the cost really boils down to um, your turnover rate and the number of people who leave your organization. I literally just talked to a client uh, on the on the phone earlier today who was telling me that their number one problem is that uh, they, they love to tout how great their culture is, right? So for the organization, if you're there for five years longer, leaders literally stay for a decade or more. So they say, they love to say, Oh, we have great people who who stay long term in our organization. But I asked them a key question. I said, what is your turnover rate for people that come to work for you in the first 18 to 36 months? And everybody got quiet in the call. I mean, like deathly quiet. And they said, well, that's actually the biggest problem is that we lose 50% 50% of the people in the first 18 months and in over 36 months is still about 30%. But then they say, well, but if you get past 36, then it starts to go down real fast. And then once you get to five years, people stay there long-term. And I asked the question, I said, well, how much does it cost you to replace a person and how much time does it cost you? And they say, well, it's anywhere from, in a, this was normal times, six to eight weeks to hire and replace a frontline team member. And it costs us between 50 and $80,000 per person. And I said, is that pre-pandemic numbers? And they said, yes. I said, so what is it taking you now? And they said, our time to fill now is four and a half months. So think about how much productivity is being lost when you have a team that's supposed to have 10 people but you only have six people and it's taking you four and a half months to find four people. And then you treat them so bad because you don't have a good leadership culture that you're going to lose 50% of the four that you hired within the first 18 months and have to start the process all over again. So there's a monumental cost in terms of productivity, in terms of morale, but the bottom line financial costs of, of what you're losing when you don't have a fully capable team. Not to mention how you expose yourself to potential liability if you have a bad leader or a bad leadership culture and that leader doesn't know how to respect people, doesn't know how to talk to people, 
uses inappropriate language, is uh, uncivil in the workplace, harasses people, bullies people. I mean, we live in a litigious society today that people could easily go file a lawsuit. And I can tell you in the United States of America, it was a half a billion dollars of out-of-court settlements for lawsuits due to harassment and discrimination claims. These didn't even go to court. You didn't even have to prove it in court that it was so bad that the company was willing to settle out of court to the tune of a half a billion dollars. That's mind-blowing. So it's a lot of cost to it. And and then the the last thing, if I just break it down to an individual cost, um, the great resignation that we see happening all across the country right now and all across the world, if you will, people are just making a decision that they're sick and tired of being sick and tired. Nobody wants to work for a butthole anymore. Nobody wants to. Nobody wants to work for someone who doesn't value them, respect them, and treat them fairly. And let me be clear. I'm going to break it down for your audience because I want them to really take this from an esoteric concept of leadership. I'm going to break it down very simply. Every person that you lead is asking three questions every time that they see you. Every time they log into a meeting, every time they jump on a Zoom or a Teams or whatever platform you use, every time you do a conference call, every employee is asking the same three questions. And you should imagine that these questions are tattooed on their foreheads every time you see them. And here are the three questions. Question number one is, do you care about me? Question number two is will you help me? Question number three is can I trust you? And let me be clear. Do you care about me? Is really, do you show me that you care about me? They don't want to hear yes to those questions. They want to see yes in your actions, that you care about them. Do you know their spouse's name? Do you know their children's names? Do you know where they went to school, their favorite book? their favorite color, their favorite candy bar, their favorite snack. Because if you don't know who I am, really, then you definitely can't care about me. You can't. You can try to motivate me at work, but if you don't know what's important to me, then you can't really motivate me. The second question, will you help me? It's really, will you help me to be successful in my work? Because every person on your team wants to be successful. Nobody takes a job or a career path or join a team to be a failure. Everybody wants to be successful. So the question is, as a leader, what are you going to do every day to help me to be successful? Have you given me the tools, the training, the information? Have you given me the resources to do my job and to do it well? Because if you don't answer that you care about me, and you're willing to help me to be successful, then I'm never going to trust you. Mm. I'm never going to trust you. And the third question takes a long time to develop. Like, you don't trust people immediately. You might know them. You might like them. But you don't trust them. They don't trust you. And trust is earned over time. But it only takes a second to break trust. And if you ever stop showing your team that you care about them, if you ever stop helping them to be successful, 
then you start to erode trust. So that's the basic level of what it costs you, that, that people will quit on an organization and on a leader that doesn't care about them, that is not being helpful to them in their goals in their life. Not just be successful at the job that I'm doing, but be successful in life. And they don't want to work for people that they can trust. And they'll stick around, stick around just as long as necessary until they can find somebody better that does care about them, that is willing to help them, and that they believe that they can trust. That's the basics. Anton, that was leadership at its finest. Like for those leaders that are listening, I hope you write that down. I hope you dwell on that and those questions. Look at all of your team and know that they are asking those subconsciously. So you mentioned the word leadership culture, those two words together. What is a healthy leadership culture? Yeah. So a healthy leadership culture, um, it it really involves a lot of the things that we literally have been talking about here. Uh, where you have created an organization where you have uh, reciprocal and routine processes to become aware of what's wrong in your culture. That's the first thing. So you got ways to get feedback from frontline team members to middle management, to senior management, from your customers, from your vendors, from the community that you're in. And you maintain situational awareness because you built in a process that everybody talks, that you have a learning culture in your organization. You don't have a punitive culture, but you have a learning culture in your organization. That's part one. The second thing is, is that you have leaders in your organization who, who, who master the fundamentals of leadership versus management. Management is, you know, you, sh- you make sure people show up on time. You make sure they go to lunch on time, that, that they don't stay too long at lunch and that they, they don't clock out early. That's, that's management. You don't want management. You want a leadership culture. A leadership culture is a culture where your job as a leader is to answer those three questions for every person on your team. Do you teach your managers those three questions and how to answer them in real time? So an example that I'll give you is that I was talking to an organization and um, the assistant to a senior executive was in my session, not as a participant, but she was sitting on the side to help manage the technology. And when we took a break from the workshop, she came up to me and she said to me, you know that my boss doesn't care about me and doesn't help me. And I said, well, what do you mean? I, I thought you all were happy. She said, for a year and a half, I've had a broken keyboard at my desk. And I've told him about the keyboard over and over again. And because the keyboard is broken, it's one of those little flip tabs at the, at the top end of the keyboard. So it now teeters back and forth and it makes this horrible noise and she can't get a level hand. So she's typing more errors. She's typing slower. And she said over and over again, I need a new keyboard. But because he was so cheap and was like, we only order supplies uh, one time a year or something along those lines, right? Uh, She went for months with a broken keyboard and it just made her feel ineffective at her job. A broken keyboard. Now, how easy that was to fix. But she said, Anton, you described me in your workshop that I'm actually looking for another job and don't want to stay here because my boss didn't care about me enough and didn't help me enough 
to fix a keyboard. And I never felt empowered to do anything about it. So leadership is having leaders who answer those three questions and a team that feels empowered, empowered to solve problems, empowered to innovate, empowered to develop new ways and process to make what you do better. So that's the second point. And the third pillar of an organization that I think is a fantastic world-class workplace culture is an organization that's full of justice. And when I say justice, that every leader knows intellectually, emotionally, and systemically that is their responsibility to make things right when they go wrong. See, think about it in this way. Most great businesses have a customer service department. And if ever a customer came in and said, my meal isn't right, or this product that I bought from you is defective. Well, we know the guarantee of our businesses is generally, if you're not a satisfied customer, we're going to do whatever it takes to make it right. We're going to replace that object. We're going to refix your meal, or we're going to give you the meal for free because it was so bad, but we're going to make some kind of recompense for what's not right. But the problem is, James, is companies don't do that for their employees. Hmm. That employees will experience wrong at work, and it'll be years before anybody ever acknowledges that what happened to you in the marketing department was wrong, that you getting passed over for that promotion was not right, that you being yelled at because of something that somebody else did was wrong, that you not having a budget big enough to execute on the project that we told you to execute on was wrong. And so we're going to acknowledge that it was wrong, and then we're going to do something to make it right. We're going to give you a bigger budget, or we're going to give you more team members, or we're going to put you on a new team in a better environment, or we're going to get rid of that bad leader who did that bad thing to you because you're more valuable to us than a person who perpetuates injustice and unfairness in our workplace. And so the greatest organizations, in my opinion, are the ones who live out the justice code. That's what I teach, is how to make things right when they're wrong. And if you have that situational awareness, you're answering those three questions, you got empowered leaders, and everybody believes it's their responsibility that when things go wrong, don't let them fester, don't let them hang, but actually do something to make them right. That's when we're winning. Beautiful. That's so beautiful. And it makes me think a little bit about organizational values. And, you know, clients that I've worked with, organizations I've worked with, they have values, but often they're up on the wall and they're words. But I struggle to see them actually be embodied in the organization. Uh, the, the staff know them as words, but they don't know them as, uh, you know, doing experiences. They're, they're not things that they embody. So how do you go about with your clients helping them embody organizational values? Yeah. So I think that's a great question because, you know, one of the things that, that I'm real clear about is we put these value statements up on the wall and we, we plaster them everywhere. Um, but, you know, most frontline employees don't even know the organization's values. They don't. I mean, I've, I've, I've been inside of organizations where the senior executive team can tell you the values. 
Um, the senior managers can tell you the values. But if you ask the person who's working in the parking lot, works at the security desk, works at the customer service, what's the company's values? They have absolutely no idea what the values are. They just don't. And because they don't, what ends up happening is they don't live those values. And so you have to get sold out of giving people operational bullet points or operational examples of what does it mean to live our values. So for instance, if you value innovation, and there are a lot of companies who love to say innovation is our number one value, right? Value and innovation means that you have a process and a way for anyone in the organization to offer an idea to improve everything that you do in the organization. Not just your product development division, or not just the tech team who, who, who does the technology. But again, if I'm the guy at the security desk, okay, and I'm frustrated because I have a long line trying to get people into the building every day because we have this archaic process that I have to scan every ID and print out a new badge, and it takes me twice as long than it would if we just allow people to register before they come to the building and put their own stuff in. And then I just validate it by searching their name and then printing out the name tag. That will speed up our process by 40%. Well, a lot of organizations, your job is security. Your job is not to innovate. And so if you're going to live an organizational value, you got to create the space and the processes for everybody to live that value. Now, especially if your value is diversity, if your values are compassion, if your values are teamwork, and, and these words that we love to throw around as buzzwords. But if, if teamwork is a value, does everybody really feel like they're on a team? Do you really create the space for them to be on a team? Do you give them all the same playbook and all of the same uh, information in order for them to work to, together? Do you take time off? Do you have retreats and other things that allow teams to grow together? Because I've seen a lot of organizations say that teamwork is a value, but the executive team has never done an offsite retreat together. I mean, how do you how do you literally say that you you value teamwork when you don't even value your senior team enough to do a one day or a two day offsite where you're not suited and booted, but you got on your shorts and your t-shirt and your flip-flops and you're sitting around um, learning about each other and how to have each other's back and help each other to solve problems. So you really have to give people that operational example of what their value looks like in action, values in action, and then celebrate people who do it, celebrate and reward people who literally live out those values. So if Tom and security comes up with a new idea, then put Tom's face all over the website, all over the billboard, all over everything, and let everybody in the company know that we value this frontline team member because he gave us an innovative idea that decreased our wait time for visitors to come into our buildings by 75%, all because we went to a web-based format and sent people an email that had an appointment before having them to come to the front desk. You got to do that. That's how you build what I call a world-class culture. So good. And Anton, when you were uh, with the Obama team, were mm -hmm. you really aware of what the values were? Were they clear within that team? 
Yeah. So, you know, it, it's really complicated when um, you're talking about the federal government that runs an entire nation of, of 300 million people <laughs> because different agencies have different values. So, for instance, if you're at um, Immigration and Naturalization Services, your value proposition or your values as an organization are totally different than the FBI's values. And they're totally different than uh, the Department of the Interior who oversees our parks and our green spaces. And those values are different than the Small Business Administration. And those values are different than NASA or the Department of Energy. So you may sometimes have some competing values depending on the entity and the organization, but the global value of our responsibility was to make our country safer, healthier, and better for the American people is something that we all knew every day. And you didn't become a part of the organization without doing the first thing, which is to take the oath of office. And the oath of office was the same for everyone, whether you're an FBI agent, whether you're a general in the military, whether you work at the park service, or whether you are a part of emergency management operations, we all took the exact same oath of office. And it gives us a centering and a grounding of what our responsibility is for the American people and for the Constitution of the United States. And so once you have that, that centering and that grounding of all in the same boat, then you at least have a North Star or uh, the Southern Cross, as I, I would say, if you people in the in another hemisphere, we all have something that is similar to help us to see we're all going into the same space. That's so powerful. And for those larger organizations, so if somebody's listening right now that runs a large organization, mm -hmm. what could they do to create an oath of office, something similar to that? Yeah. So I would say the first thing you should do is to really spend some time uh, reflecting on uh, what's the vision of your company, your organization. And what do I mean vision? Um, not what you'll do, but I'm talking about if you were totally successful as an organization and you were no longer needed on the planet Earth, meaning that you solved the problem that your business was trying to solve, what would that world look like? That's your vision statement. Your vision statement is, is if we were totally successful, if we had unlimited time, unlimited money, unlimited resources, and unlimited ability to accomplish what we're trying to do, how does the world look different because we were successful? Hmm. That's the first thing. You come up with that vision, and then you start to walk out, okay, what do we need to do every day, every person, not just a different division, a different department, but what do we need to do every day, individually and collectively, to make that vision a reality? That becomes your mission statement. And you put that mission statement not only in a prominent place, but you talk about that mission statement every day. And you remind people the purpose. We are doing this to make that vision a reality. 
And then when you evaluate talent, when you're looking at bringing people into your organization and bringing people onto your team, you ask them the question, this is our vision. This is our mission statement. Can you commit to this mission? Can you commit to playing a role to help make this mission operational to make that vision a reality? That's what I would start. So succinct and so pithy. Like that's absolutely amazing. And for that leader who's just heard that right now, and he or she's listening, how can they develop the traits to be a more admired executive, a more admired leader? Yeah. So very, very good question. And I I will tell you, um, I want to help people with this. This is like very basic uh, stuff. And many times leaders just don't really know how to go about it. So I've created a a worksheet, if you will, um, that I'll make available to all of your listeners uh, and viewers. If they're watching this is the bottom line is go to antongun.com slash admired antongun.com forward slash admired. And you give me an email address. I'm going to give you this free worksheet where I'm going to share a couple of the principles of how you can become that executive that embodies these great traits. And when I mean great traits, I'm talking about Nelson Mandela type traits, Mother Teresa type traits, Martin Luther King Jr. type traits, traits that will make you one of the most admired leaders on the planet Earth. That executive that everybody in the company looks up to, that will run through walls for, that will work not just eight hours, but 12 hours for, that won't quit until they help you to achieve the mission and make the vision a reality. And the first trait is a simple one, and it's a non-conventional one, which is you have to become more likable as a leader. As I said, in this day and age, nobody wants to work for a butthole. (laughs) And we got a whole lot of leaders who are buttholes. And um, my grandmother used to have this phrase that she says, you can attract a lot more flies with honey than you can vinegar. And everybody know that vinegar is sour, um, it's bitter, it doesn't taste well. You can't drink vinegar and enjoy it. But everybody knows that honey is sweet and has a great taste. And so the context is, does your team like you as a leader? Do they like you? Do they they even know you enough to like you? And if you haven't shared who you are, then you're never going to be likable. And I'm not saying being easy or soft. It's none of those things. It is, are you a person that your team will want to invite over to their home for dinner? Are you the kind of person that they would want to have a beer with, a cup of coffee with, and not talk about work, but just talk about you and each other? If you're not that leader, then you got to find ways to become more likable for the team that you lead. The second thing that you need to do is what I call to become more respectful of the people that you lead. How do you you have more deference for the people that you lead? We know you're the leader. We know you have the title. You have the corner office. You got the great business card. You got the great cushy leather chair. You got all of those things 
that make you a leader. But the real question is, for your team that doesn't have any of that, what are you doing to show them the same respect that you expect people to show you because you have the title? You got to become more respectful of your team, respectful of their time, respectful of the challenges that they face, respectful of what's going on in their lives. There's nothing worse than a leader who has a team member whose son is playing sports and is playing for a championship and they miss their son's game or their match because the leader is saying, I need you here to finish this project by 9 p.m. tonight. That's not respectful. Respectful is recognizing that that's important. That's a moment in their life that they will never be able to get back is watching their child play in the state championship. And yes, you have a deadline and stuff needs to get done, but you should have a team who should be able to pick them up and help them out when something important like that. That's what being respectful is all about. And on that front, before we look at the next trip, it's so powerful. Um, you're talking about respecting others. Do you think when a leader lacks self-respect that it's much harder for them to respect the others around them? Correct. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Um, if you if you don't respect yourself, then you're not going to respect other people. And so let's unpack that a little bit more, because I think, you know, people will generally think that they respect themselves. So here's what self-respect looks like. Are you taking care of your own personal, mental and physical health? So many leaders love to say that they're respectful but they're not doing anything to take care of themselves. They don't get enough rest at night. They don't exercise. They don't eat well. They don't um, have great relationships with their own children. They don't have great relationships with their spouse, their parents. They don't have great relationships with their friends in their lives. They got friends that they haven't talked to in 20 years. That is not respecting yourself because you're a human being. You're a person. You have people in your life that you should be caring about and you need to show up for them. And it's hard to show up for the people in your personal life without that self-respect, without taking care of yourself. So if you don't do it in your personal life, that you're not going to do it in your work life, not consistently. Maybe you might respect one person or two people on your team, but overall people will see through that you're not taking care of yourself. Another example of a leader not taking care of themselves is a leader that loves to send 4 a.m. emails, <laughs> text messages to your team at 3 a.m. because you got an idea. So you're interrupting their sleep because you've interrupted your sleep. You want to be successful as a leader, you got to find a way to make sure that you have balance in your life. And it's hard to respect people when you don't respect yourself. Mm, so powerful. I love the way you paint that. And you're right. There are leaders who want to encroach across those boundaries, those personal boundaries in the evenings and in the early mornings. And I love that. Would you encourage that leader to have somewhere to capture those ideas and then come back to them at 9 a.m.? Yes, I, I would tell you this. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a prolific journal writer. I, I, I collect journals. I got journals all over my office. 
And when I complete a journal, I just put it in my on my bookcase and I'm building a whole library of my personal journaling over years about different things. If you're a leader, you should always have something that you keep by your bedside or, or keep with you to write down those things that you're thinking about. I mean, we all got smartphones today. I mean, you can got a note section in your iPhone that you could put those notes in, but write them down. I'm not saying, you know, pass on it or miss on it, but write it down. And if you really do want to send that email, if you're still not respectful enough yourself to get some sleep and you want to send that email at 4 a.m., how about you write the email and then schedule it to go out at 8.30 a.m. rather than at 4 a.m.? I mean, but the main point is to just write it down. If it's if it's not an emergency, if it's not worth calling them on the phone and waking them up at the middle of the night to do something about, then it's not worth sending the email at 4 a.m. And Anton, what you're saying is so, so important. For the leader that's listening right now, it's like, hey, if I send the email at 4 a.m., it tells my team that these are the expectations. If I do it at 4 a.m., I expect you to do it at 4 a.m. So it's yes. not... If you're sending to your team, hey, guys, I want you to clock off at five o'clock, but you send the 4 a.m. email, what you're saying and what you're doing are totally incongruent. So congruency sounds like congruency is a very important aspect. It is a very important aspect. I mean, again, the, the, the most unfortunate leadership habits that we exhibit are the habits that we learn from the first leaders that we work for or the person who we felt like was the most successful and so we start to duplicate and replicate these bad habits. And so, you know, your leader sends you emails at 4 a.m., you get promoted to a senior role, you think you got to do the same thing to your team. And that's just not a good way to do business. Mm, I'm 100% with you. <laughs> and how else can someone develop that admiration as a leader? Yeah, so I would say the next one is one that... Uh, it, we know this one the most as leaders. Uh, we, we, we hear this one the most and we talk about it the most. And that is to become a motivator for your people. And when I say motivator, um, I, I, motivation is like oxygen. You need it every day. Some days are going to be harder than others. And you need a leader that is willing to motivate you uh, to go to the next level. And so how do you motivate your team? Well, one, you got to show up. You know, if you got to not be a, you got to, you got to be unafraid to get into the trenches and work alongside the people that you lead. Never ever get to a position where you're, you're too big to do a job on your team. Yes, maybe you don't have the time to do it all the time, but the greatest leaders are the ones that show up in the trenches with the people that they're leading. I mean, the greatest example that we have right now in the world is President Zelensky in the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's the president of the country and he hasn't had on a suit or a tie since the war started. And he's out on the streets with the soldiers that he's asked to put their lives on the line for their country. He's not hiding away from anybody. He's right beside them. And that's why he's inspiring his team, inspiring his country, men and women, to do everything in their power to defend themselves against the uh, um, invasion, the assault that's happening with Russia right now. So the main point is to be a motivator. It's not about just what you say and telling people the big words and come on, guys, you can do it. It's time to step up. No, it's what are you doing to show them to be alongside them every day 
that you're there with them. That when the job gets difficult, that you're right there with them trying to make it easy. Or you're experiencing the difficulty with them. That's the greatest motivation is to see people doing the work with you. Mm, powerful. And Anton, leadership is something that you and I are so passionate about. How do you and I, and the person that's listening to this right now, how do we create more heroic leaders like Zelensky mm-hmm. and less tyrants? Yeah. How do we do that? Because the future of our world mm-hmm. relies on you and the yes. people that you lead and that you work yes. with to yes. create more Zelenskys and more heroes. How do we do that? Um, it's one simple word. It's four letters. And it's love. And I, and I really mean that with all fibers of my body is that we need more love for the people that we lead. We need to show people that love drives out hate. Love is a bright light that can't be overcome by darkness. And the more people that we can show love to and show them how to love, and how love is manifested in real time in the workplace, the more people will duplicate that great behavior. Now, how do you show love? Is one, you show people that you care about them. Two, you show people that you're here to help them to be successful, and you build trust, and you don't break that trust. See, those three questions that I gave you earlier in our conversation, Those are the questions that your children ask you. Those are the questions that your, you know, your customers ask you. Those are the same questions everybody is asking. And if we have more people who are committed to answering those questions with their actions, and then when people say, what can I do to help you? The answer is, I want you to do the same thing for others that I've done for you. I want you to care about them. I want you to help them. And I want you to never break their trust. So I think we get more Zelensky's by encouraging more people to love uh, and more leaders to, to show love and, and, and be a human being. I think that's the real thing is just be human, mm-hmm. be human, it, it have your emotions and, and, don't mind sharing those emotions. So, so good. I've got just a, a couple more questions for you. And b- before I yeah, do sure. that, I want to remind, for the person that's listening right now, please do go to Anton Gunn with two N's, antongun.com forward slash admired and download this. It's got all of the traits to be more admired as an executive. Yes. So to, to just to ask about your vision, Anton Gunn's mm-hmm. vision. So mm-hmm. what is that vision? What, when you leave this earth, what's that one thing you're, you're going to leave behind that's going to be solved? Yeah. So um, this is, you know, I, I have four values as a company and as a business. And I've shared uh, three of them with you. And that is service is a value. Empowerment is a value. Injustice is a value, making things right. The fourth value is arguably the most important. And that value is legacy. 
And I sum up legacy in a quote from Dr. Miles Monroe. And the quote is, success without a successor is a failure. Success without a successor is a failure. And that if you don't use your time, your talent, and your leadership position to leave the world a better place for those that come along after you, you might be successful, but you will never be significant. And the goal, the vision for me and my company is to be significant in the lives of 10,000 leaders. No more than that. Not 100,000, not a million leaders, not a billion leaders, but just 10,000 leaders who live the values and the traits that I teach from the stage and in my workshops and the organizations that I consult with. See, if I can identify 10,000 leaders who are willing to live the way that I live, to teach the way that I teach, to serve the way that I serve, to empower the way that I empower, and to work to make things right the way I'm working to make things right, those 10,000 leaders will impact the lives of 1 million people. And I believe that just a million committed, authentic, and accountable leaders can change the entire planet, Mm -hmm. solve every problem that we have before us, address every issue that we have, remove all the division, the hate, um, the discord that we have, because we have a million mission-driven leaders who are focused on living those four values. It's the most beautiful vision. And for that person that's listening right now, I want to ask, you know, what's your vision? And Anton's vision is inspiring and it inspires me to hear it. I'm on the other end here, Anton, connecting with you, but it inspires me to hear it. And for the person that's trying to create their own vision, I want you to be able to inspire yourself. When you write that vision down, it should inspire you and the people around you. Now, Anton, just to wrap up with one last question, I want to bring it way closer to home for you as a dad. So if your daughter was to say, hey, dad, I know your last breath is coming. Mm -hmm. I've got one last question for you. Can you please tell me? I really want to know this, dad. And that question was this. Dad, how do I lead a life of purpose? What would you answer to that? Mm. You leave a life of purpose by simply doing three things. Number one is to serve people before you try to lead them. Number two, help them to achieve whatever they want to achieve in life. Don't focus on your own goals, focus on their goals. And the third thing to lead a life of purpose is to figure out what you're good at and become great at it. That's stunning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that clip. I'm going to send it to you and please pass it on to your daughter. That's just stunning. And Happy folks, to do it. 
leadership is not a word. Leadership is an action. So for, for you that's listening right now, please do a couple things. One, go follow Anton on Instagram and LinkedIn. Anton Gunn. Please go to antongunn.com forward slash admired and download those traits of admired leaders. So Anton, I just want to say a massive, massive heartfelt thank you for connecting today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. It's been a great time. It's been awesome. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for tuning in today and investing in your own personal leadership. Please hit that subscribe button and I'd love if you'd leave me a rating and review. I've got some amazing guests lined up for you in the coming weeks. And leaders, it's that time to get out there and lead your life on purpose.